Welcome to the Fundraising Elevator, where we're all headed up. This podcast is a production of ElevateNonprofit.com, an online learning platform for fundraising event professionals. We're coming to you today from the studios of the AV department. Please welcome our hosts, Kristen Steele and Samantha Swaim. Well, I'm super excited today because we're talking about an element of all fundraising and all event planning that is so necessary, which is storytelling. It's so popular and so buzzy that we've had many episodes already about storytelling. We're going to have many more. And there's even a whole conference dedicated to nonprofit storytelling. It's true. And the most common thing that I hear from our nonprofit friends is we don't do storytelling because we don't want to exploit people. And so today we've invited our friend Zach to be here to talk about the difference of empowering versus exploitation in our storytelling and to really be able to dive into kind of creating a culture of storytelling. So before we welcome Zach, I'm so glad to have you here, Zach, joining us. But let's give the audience an official bio so everyone knows who Zach is. Official bio. (laughs) Zach Putnam is the owner of ZP Productions, a video production firm that does cinematic storytelling for good. They are an award-winning team of filmmakers who are passionate about telling moving, character-driven stories that matter. With a mission to empower voices that often go unheard, Zach himself is a filmmaker and producer with over a decade of experience telling stories that move people. He is also an adjunct professor of multimedia storytelling at the University of Portland. Zach, thanks for being here with us. We're super glad to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm honored, flattered that you asked me to be here. We're so glad. Um, let's go big picture first. Sure. Why is it important to incorporate video storytelling for fundraising? Well, um, I think, you know, as Sam just sort of implied, storytelling in general is incredibly important for all of these organizations to help um raise awareness, get people excited, and get donations, right? And I personally am a little biased, but I think that (laughs) video storytelling is one of, if not the most effective way, especially when it comes to the uh, impacting people emotionally. Um, A well-done video story can, like, really just, like, bring down the house emotionally, in my opinion, in in ways that can be hard to do with a live speaker or or a written appeal, right, which is what a lot of people do. Um, And also— Frankly, you have, and we'll get into this later in the ethics of it, right, but you do have a lot more control over the messaging, both you and the storyteller, right? They don't have to worry about flubbing their lines on the stage (laughs) in the way that a live event can sometimes go um, because we have the power of editing and reviews and revisions. And the last thing I guess I would say is that, you know, I think that a a well-produced whether it's an appeal story or an an org video, a a well-produced video that you make for your fundraising event is one of the few assets that really lasts beyond the event. And you can keep using it. And it's really an investment that many of our clients keep using these videos we produce for years to come and build up sort of a library of different kinds of stories that they can share with different donors. So that's sort of my big three reasons to do video storytelling, I think. Those are great frames. Talk to us a little bit about your work itself. So um, as you uh, mentioned in my bio, thank you very much for reading that, um, that uh, I have a small company and we work almost exclusively with nonprofit or sometimes we say mission-driven organizations because, you know, the definitions can get a little gray sometimes. But we, we try to work with organizations that we really feel like are doing important work and we're excited to support them. Uh, we don't turn like corporate clients away, but it's not who we go looking for. Um, and over the years, we've 
built up a pretty big roster of nonprofit and mission-driven organizations that we work with, and we love it. Most of our work is in the Pacific Northwest, but we also work with uh, organizations around the country and even around the world. In January, we were filming with a healthcare NGO in Ghana. I was going to say, didn't I see you traveling abroad just recently? Yeah, we were in Ghana and West Africa Amazing. in January, and we're just starting to get in, well, it's finishing, I guess, the edits for that piece. That um, it's, a, it's actually a, a public service campaign oh, cool. to increase awareness about um, CPR training in Ghana. You know, so it's a very sort of unique. Awesome. And, and that's what's really fun about what we do is like every week we're immersed in some sort of new topic or issue. And it's almost always something that we're really passionate about and excited to be helping people tell. Um, so that's a little bit. But, yeah, we travel. We work in Portland a lot. Um, we, we love what we do. We're really passionate about it. Well, I think something that's really unique about our work with ZP is that you are sort of a collective of storytellers. It's not one person. It's not one camera. You have a whole team that you pull from and often will even resource other folks if you feel like you need to be able to have resources in other locations or, you know, be able to bring a whole team in to do. We recently did some video work with you that was all environmental based and you were able to bring in all sorts of resources for us to be able to get underwater shots and to be able to get all sorts of aerial shots. So I always appreciate that you have sort of an abundance of resources that you're tapping into that just aren't limited to your camera and you, but are, you know, other resources and team members. Well, the crux of the conversation today is that idea of how do we tell a story when, as a mission-based organization, we're protecting our clients, we're really valuing the time and energy that they have, and even sometimes we're working with organizations that say, we don't share our clients' stories. So one of the sort of buzzy phrases that we use often is ethical storytelling, Kristen, you talk a lot about ethical storytelling being really based in not leading with deficit, but leading in strength, making that individual kind of the hero. Yep. I, you know, Kristen as a storyteller is a script writer and mm -hmm. often is in the script of our event programs. So I wanted to ask you, Kristen, how would you define ethical storytelling before we start talking into, about how it like plays into video? Sure. I think um, the way I think about ethical storytelling is um, – power. Okay. Who has the power? Um, and for me, when the power doesn't sit with the storyteller, we're heading into the ter territory of not doing ethical storytelling. Yeah. Exploiting someone's story. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So how does that sort of play out when you're thinking behind the camera of pulling together a story? You have a lot of power. You're controlling the lighting, you're controlling what they look like, you're controlling the camera angle, you're controlling the editing. So talk to me about what ethical storytelling sort of means to you and how that plays out in your process. Yeah. Um, yeah, thanks. Great questions. Um, this is certainly really important. And, and I agree with you. We, we encounter organizations all the time that are very protective of their clients and their stories and totally understandably so. Um, and so they should be. Yeah, they absolutely yes, should be. That's absolutely. important. I, I I love that instinct yeah. in our organizations that yeah. they're immediately like, "Whoa, hold on, what do you want to do here?" Yeah, right. And um, and I think that's a great place to start. Like, let's have a conversation about this. Like, what could go wrong? 
Um, and how can we avoid that? How can we make this an empowering process mm. and not an exploitive process? Yep. And the good news is I think it's totally possible to take it in a very empowering direction yep. where the people uh, whose stories we're telling at the end like feel great and feel uplifted yeah. and honored. And really it's almost – it's a cathartic experience for some people. So for us – Ethical storytelling has a lot to do with that just sort of like focusing on empowerment, which, you know, to your point, power, right? Yeah, um, right? And like making sure that the storytellers feel that they have all the power that they need. And a lot of that has to do with transparency and consent and just mm. collaboration and making yeah. sure, you know, I'm very careful to never say that we're telling someone's story. We almost always try to say we're helping somebody tell their story because it's for them to tell their own story. Yep. I have all these tools and tricks and ways to do it, but I want to make sure we're doing it in a way that the storyteller feels good about it during the process and at the end of the process especially. So you just said consent, and yeah. I think that that's an important element. Our friend Tammy Zonker, who is a fundraising consultant, always says consent is more than a form, <laughs> and that consent is something that can be removed at any time. So when you're prepping for being able to get in front of a camera with a storyteller, how do you help the client set that storyteller up for success? What are the things that you think about with making sure we have consent before we go into that process? A lot of it is about um, transparency and and letting people know what to expect. Mm. So and and sort of just moving slowly. If you know, some people are excited and they say, "Great, let's let's shoot tomorrow." You know, and that's fine. That's great. Other people want to kind of talk through the process more. And so we're very big about offering uh, opportunity for a, a pre-interview or just a meet oh, and greet for the storyteller to meet the film crew, ask about what to expect, um, what the process is going to look like, what kind of questions will you be asking, and, and let them sort of get as much sense of what is going to happen before it happens and give them opportunities to say, no, I'm not going to be comfortable with yeah. that. And, you know, who do you want in the room? I think that's really important asking people, like, who would you be most comfortable talking to? Mm. Um, we're very open to sharing the interviewing responsibilities in a way that lets the storyteller feel more comfortable and, like, they're speaking to more to a peer, perhaps, then certainly you don't want any kind of weird power dynamics in the interview itself. Right. Mm -hmm. Um so I think that I'm kind of answered most some of your questions. Yeah, I think sometimes one of the things that you and I have worked on together is thinking about that interviewer sometimes being the person at the organization that they know best. Because sometimes that just makes them feel more comfortable. This is someone who knows their story and has a relationship to them and can like be an intermediary as well and kind of direct us if they feel like this person needs a minute or mm -hmm. this is they would feel more comfortable. You actually did an interview recently for us where the individual felt more comfortable holding their dog. And so we adjusted the shot to make sure that they could hold their dog. So that idea of making sure we're taking time, which is something that you talk a lot about. Can you talk about how time can actually help with framing the story from an ethical perspective? Yeah, I think it's just, you know, it's kind of obvious, but I'm always pushing for people to give us more time to tell these stories well and to to do them, you know, the service that, that they're due. Um, so, and that means both sort of in the run-up, in the pre-production phase, let, let's give time for the storyteller to ask questions, do a pre-interview, whatever, that kind of stuff. Don't rush that. But also the day of 
filming. It's yeah. really important to me that we carve out, you know, generally speaking, more time than we need. I would so much rather wrap early yeah. than be like, hey, I know we were supposed to leave an hour ago, but there's still five things we haven't done. So I'm always asking for more time. And and what that helps us do is move at a pace that the storytellers don't feel rushed. I mean, you know, it's easy for me to forget because I'm doing it all the time, right? But these people that we're working with typically aren't accustomed to being interviewed and being on camera. And they've been told a film crew is going right. to come to their house <laughs> and set up in their living room. And the the things that they're imagining in their heads, I think, I don't know if you ever seen that movie, What About Bob? But there's a scene in there where like um, Good Morning America or something comes and films in their living room. And that's what I always assume people are imagining, that we're just going to like tear their whole house apart. Right. <laughs> Which, first of all, we're very low impact and very respectful about not <laughs> taking over and destroying people's living rooms. But when we arrive, introducing ourselves, having time, again, to just talk with the storyteller, help them get comfortable, ask questions, build some trust, chat a little bit before we start asking interview questions, um, that's so helpful. And I think it's also a sign of respect. If we are rushing, if we get in there and yeah. we're like, we got to set this up, we got to start your yeah. interview, we got to get out of here, boom, boom, boom. I think it makes people feel like their story is being kind of minimized, right? Whereas right. we're like, hey— I got the whole day carved out for you here, and we want you to tell your story. Tell your story as many times as you want until you feel like you've told it the way that you wanted it told, yeah. you know? And that just takes time. You just got to allow time for that. And I know it can feel like an imposition when we're asking for people like, hey, could you carve out like half a day for us to come hang out with you? Right. But my experience is that, you know, if people don't have time, they'll say no. And um most of the time, people are grateful for having that amount of time and, and not feeling rushed. And, yeah, and, you know, the other thing that's very satisfying about our job is that I think when we do this right at the end of, like, the interview day and at the end of the editing process, even, yeah. our storytellers frequently are thanking us. Yeah. You know, I have, like, a stack of gifts on my desk that people have given us over the years just because a process that they were often very nervous about ended up going, like, very smoothly and— in a way that they felt good about, um, very positive about. And people show so much gratitude for that. Yeah. And it's really meaningful, really moving. Well, I think the other element of time there is it allows someone else to drive. And I think that becomes really interesting during an interview because often in that interview, everyone's discovering pieces of the story, right? I think we're given sort of the frame of this is who who we want to interview. This is the story we want to tell. Right. But that isn't giving the power to the storyteller. Right. Giving the power to the storyteller is getting in for the interview and actually hearing the story. And I think um, sometimes it takes us into just beautiful, unexpected places. Um, and so I think in that interview process, I just want to sort of surface the idea too of, you know, where we think focus should be is um, not helpful sometimes to the storyteller in terms of their journey and their trauma. Um, and so I think that's where exploitation starts to happen right. is when we're like, ooh, that's the juicy stuff. And it's like, yeah, but that's where the trauma is. Why are we right. going to stay in this place and ask them a bunch of questions they don't want to answer, right? And then also – I think sometimes from a programmatic point of view, this person's story has been surfaced for an outcome for the organization. And sometimes a storyteller can have a different vantage point on there. And so sometimes it's about um, really making sure we're fighting for their story yeah. and what that looks like. And it may look a little bit different than the storyboard going in. And that's awesome. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, stories are so unpredictable and infinitely varying, and that's part of what's magical. You know, we have all these sort of preconceived narratives going in, and that yeah. can be helpful, um, but you need to be totally open to letting those go and seeing the story go in a different direction. And also in terms of consent, I think it's important at the end, you know, um, to make sure that the storytellers get to see that video before it's put out in front of the public. It's um, so important. So important. I like want to put a big know. exclamation point on that. We have been in events where we were under the impression that the storyteller had seen the video and they hadn't. And the impact of that is that they're like fragile in front of an audience. And so that opportunity for them to say, I agree, this is how I want my story to tell be told, I think is so important for them to feel good coming into the event and feel like this is a representation that they feel comfortable with. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, the experience for a lot of these people of seeing their story told and, and what is often a very traumatic story, a very sensitive story for them to tell. Uh, seeing it told is very emotional. And, and I, like I said, I think usually for us in a, in a really positive way. Right. But they shouldn't be going through that experience like moments before they're about to like step on stage and this is the first time they're seeing it. And yeah, that's really important. And we're actually working, we're talking with a storyteller right now who to our surprise, wasn't uh, given the opportunity to watch oh. her story before the event, and it didn't turn out exactly the way that she would have liked it to. Yeah. And, and now we're working with her to figure out how to help her feel better about that. And and it could have been so easily avoided by just yeah. letting her watch mm -hmm. it before the event, you know? Well, and I think the other piece of that, too, um, is is – also not telling someone's story in the middle of their story. Oh, yeah. So we start to diminish the trauma they can potentially experience by sharing their story or seeing their story told. If their story is actually in the rearview mirror, we talk about this a lot, sort of in the rearview mirror a little bit, so that they have some distance and perspective on that story. Yeah. So that, um, you know, there's a whole neuroscience piece about you, you put stories you know, sort of emotional trauma into long storage when you can write a narrative about it. So we're actually engaging them to sort of tell us that narrative. But if that narrative is inducing trauma for them, I think it's actually our responsibility as someone who has potential power to use to advocate for them to go back and sort of understand with the organization, like, where, where are we in journey here? Is yeah. this still mm -hmm. happening? If it's still happening, it's actually not responsible for us to be in that story with them. They mm -hmm. need they need someone else who can actually really support them in that therapeutically or emotionally or whatever in that story. So I think to your point, sort of the the longer term conversation before even getting to telling the story and shooting the story with the organization and understanding what those dynamics are really set the storyteller up for success throughout the whole process, as well as, you know, sort of those of us who are partnering with them to tell their yeah. story. Well, this comes down to me to how you select a good story. Yeah. So let's take a pause for a minute. Great. When we come back, we'll talk more about like the tools for making sure we're applying good ethical storytelling. Loving the fundraising elevator, but wondering how you can talk to Sam and Kristen? Well, now's your chance to do it. Book one-on-one -on -one consulting time with Swain Strategies experts, Sam, Kristen, and Mary, and get all your event questions answered. Our team has you covered on strategic planning, fundraising strategy, storytelling, data tools, and registration support. Get the tools and the help you need to make the most impact at your fundraising event. Book at elevatenonprofit.com. The link is also in our show notes.
Welcome back. We are here with Zach Putnam talking video storytelling today. Let's get some practical pieces um, on the table for folks to consider. How much time? So (laughs) I'm an organization. I have this amazing vetted story we would like to tell in video format. For an event that's in a week. For an event that's (laughs) in a week, right? What are we talking about in terms of um, planning and production time? Filming, getting all that on the calendar, start to finish, what are we looking at? What should people realistically be budgeting for time so that you're set up for success? Well, not to be annoying, but the more time, the better. You know, like if we, I mean, even if what might seem absurd, but like if we can like follow a story for a year, you can do so much better storytelling when you can actually show change over time. When you can be like, hey, let's let's interview this person now when they're just starting this program and then interview them again at the end of the program. You can do such great storytelling with stuff like that. I know that's not always practical. So um, (laughs) um, a more... Practical answer that is still out of some people's reach, uh, as I would say, it'd be great to have a month to plan, a month in which you try to complete your filming, and a month that you do your editing and post-production. So just like a month for each sort of phase there is a nice pace. So we're talking 90 days, three months. That's what we're talking about. That would be kind of my, yes, preferred ideal. We frequently work with uh, smaller windows of time than that, but um, I think that's a nice way to do it. If you can. And we find on the shorter time frames, things get lost. Yeah. Some, you know, there there are things yeah. you have to pick and choose from. Um, and so longer allows the storyteller to re- really be at the heart of what's happening. It gives you so much more ability to do it right. And, you know, I mean, one thing that we haven't even talked about much, but like it is, I believe, important to think about culturally specific crew members, interviewers, et cetera, being part of this yeah. project. Yep. Um, and just, you know, logistically, it can be difficult to arrange those things when you only have like a week to pull together the crew. You know, right. the, yep. the more time I have, the better a crew, a team I can put together to fit that project, you know. I do think from an ethical storytelling perspective, who's in the room matters. Yep. It allows the storyteller to feel comfortable you know, we have had experiences, you and I working together, where we've had a storyteller who English is not their first language. So making sure that we have someone in the room that is able to set them up, prep them, ask them questions in a language that's comfortable for them, I think is a critical element. Like you said, mm. having time to plan for those pieces is so critical. But what about also just the filming time? I mean, let's say, for example, we're working with an elected official whose schedule is very busy or a CEO whose schedule is very busy and getting on their schedule is really challenging. Or what if we're working with someone who has multiple jobs and their schedule doesn't allow them to have a lot of flexibility? What are we thinking about when it comes to working within the constraint of time? How much time is ideal for us to set aside for the filming of the interview, and then also that other thing we haven't talked a lot about, which is B-roll content. What is ideal for you? Uh, You know, it's going to be case to case a little bit, right? Like, you know, typically if we're interviewing the very busy elected official or CEO, we don't really need to sit down and do an hour-long tell-us-your-life-story interview. And that can be squeezed into 15 minutes or something if we're just looking for a few key things, right? So, you know, you have to kind of think about what you are trying to accomplish. In the sort of classic appeal story sense, 
someone who's never had a camera in front exactly, of them. Exactly, yeah. right? And and our goal for, let's say, day one is to get a good solid interview and some B-roll. Then I typically ask for like a half day, like a four-hour block. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if they'll give me the whole day, I'll take it. But a half day is kind of a good way to a, a full day. People get sick of each other, right? But a four hours with somebody is usually gives us enough time to get that initial interview uh-huh. and some B-roll. And sometimes that's all the time we have. And so we can sometimes yep. get all the B-roll. But we can tell a richer story usually if we can set aside another day, another maybe half day, where we can film B-roll with the storyteller in a different setting, you know, frequently doing something that they talked about in their interview. It just creates a more dynamic, interesting world of the film, if I may. Yeah. Um, and um, gives, again, gives the storyteller more time to kind of think about. Sometimes when we come back for day two, they say, hey, you know, there's a thing I, I forgot to say or I never quite said it right. And I say, great, let's mic you up and we'll get you to say it right now, you know, and it gives you another chance to do that. So, you know, two two half days is kind of like my ideal minimum to do an appeal story with someone. Sometimes we don't get that much. And if someone will give me more time than that, I'll take it. Awesome. What should folks be looking for in a good production partner? Well, you know, specifically for this nonprofit stuff that we're talking yeah. about, I do think that our experience as nonprofit storytellers, not to just say what you should be looking for is us, but <laughs> I would say that yes, and an organiza- <laughs> any organization that has experience with nonprofit storytelling, because there are many, many video production companies out there, and some of them, a lot of them can make beautiful images, and a lot of them can tell really powerful stories. But I think some of these ethical considerations yeah. are just really not on the radar yep. for a lot of video production companies Agreed. and like not even really criticizing them. It's just not something they have to think about because of the kind of work that they typically do. Uh, and it's just, it's very much on our radar and kind of the first thing that we're thinking about, you know, it's sort of a baseline of pretty pictures and great stories. And then like, how can we do this in the most empowering ethical way possible while making it beautiful and compelling? Uh, so, I would just say that just like someone who has experience with this, you know, not everyone even knows what like an appeal story is. Yeah, fundraising fundraising angle is something that I think is important. We actually were just in conversation with an organization that works with a production company out of D.C. And the production company does, like you said, beautiful storytelling, pretty pictures, really incredible content. But mostly um, they work in the like entertainment sports field. And so they're used to like getting that really breathtaking shot of the ball hitting the basket. They're not necessarily thinking about it from the angle of a hero's journey. They're not necessarily thinking about it from the angle of fundraising or donor talking to a donor. And so it makes a big difference in thinking about your partner being someone, your film partner being someone who isn't just the pretty picture, but is also a storyteller with fundraising in mind. Yeah. And then, you know, like I actually try to make a point to get anyone who works on our team to attend one Mm. of the events because, again, like a lot of people just have no context. They just literally don't understand like where this is going and what the context that the people will be experiencing this is, which is all a very important part of it. So, well, and I think too, thinking about your, if, if I'm in the organization, I'm trusting this client relationship to someone. So choice of partner and sort of their ethics around how they're going to tell this story and their process and what that is, those should all be important things for me to understand, to be able to entrust this 
trusted relationship that I have to someone else to sort of carry that forward. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I have a, a great deal of appreciation for how much trust our clients put in us. You know, I mean, yeah, to, to say, hey, yeah, go on over to this person's house and, and ask them to tell <laughs> yeah. an incredibly sensitive story in a way that they feel good about it and the organization feels good. It's a lot, you know, yeah. and it, it makes me feel really good that a lot of organizations trust us to do it. But I agree. I don't think you could trust just anybody to do it right. Yeah. yeah. So because we're talking to nonprofit folks, here's the money question. Mm. What should folks be looking for in terms of cost or price tag associated to doing video storytelling for their event? Yeah, good question. You know, it's funny. Whenever I quote a price to a new potential client, like half the time they say, oh, well, that's half as much as we paid for the last video. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then the other half of the time they say like, oh, there's no way we could ever yep. possibly afford to pay that much, yep. you know, because it's just a very broad range. Um, yep. There are very high end video production companies out there. And there's like somebody on the board's nephew got a new camera for Christmas right. and they think they could do it, yep. you know? I'm yep. Like those are like the two extremes I'm sometimes sort of competing with. Um, so all I can really say is that um, our pricing has – it has definitely gone up over the years as our sure. team has grown and et cetera. Right now we are quoting around 7500 for a typical like three to five minute video production which I know is not the cheapest you could yep. get a video, but it's definitely not the most expensive. But the other thing that we do is that we think – we quote 7500 as this is what we think our work is worth. Right. This is the value yep. that you're going to be getting if you hire us. But we understand how nonprofits work, and so we generally donate a portion of our fees in kind, and it's pretty close to a pay-what-you-can system with us. Yep. Um, I don't know that other organizations do that, but – any other video production company that works with nonprofits, I think, is going to be ready to be flexible yep. because that's just how Absolutely. the world works here. So, yeah, I would say anywhere between a thousand and ten thousand would be yeah, a perfectly yep. normal amount yep. to pay for a video. So, yep. we kind of quote ourselves somewhere in the middle of that, but we are very flexible with what clients actually are expected to pay. Great. Thanks. So, one of the elements that you have sort of informed us a lot about, and I think Kristen, you talked to a lot of um, organizations about, is that one of the ways to approach ethical storytelling is to actually create a culture of storytelling within an organization. And I've seen that play out so mm -hmm. powerfully and impactfully and just like relationships and how donors are being shared the work of the organization. But I think that there's a question that often comes up of how do we do that? How do we create a culture of storytelling? So this is kind of a question to you both because I think you both um, interact with organizations that are approaching it in different ways. But, Zach, how have you seen folks really create that culture of storytelling? Well, I think it's important to um, work on getting buy-in from everybody in the organization and, and to talk about how storytelling is not just important to the organization but that – Ethical storytelling is important yep. because as we sort of talked about at the beginning, it's not uncommon for there to be sort of a divide between the development people who want to tell stories and the programs people who are naturally and justifiably protective of yeah. their clients, yep. right? And that's because they imagine the worst. And there are lots of examples of that, right? So I think if the whole organization, probably a little bit of the responsibility falls on the development team to foster this culture from day one that like stories are important to us 
and we are very careful in how we do it mm. so that we never are exploiting and we're always empowering and and just make that clear to everyone like we're thinking about that so they know when storytelling comes up that the organization is going to approach it in a good way and like there's lots of little ways you can do that i i was thinking about how you mentioned in the interview sometimes it's good to have a programs person who yeah. actually has yeah. a relationship with the storyteller be there to do the interview or at least be in the room and that's another great way to kind of get buy-in, right? To l and let those programs people be part of the process and right. be in the room and let them observe that, hey, yeah, we're being really careful and thoughtful about how we do this. And that way next year when you go looking for stories, that person says, hey, I saw like what a really positive experience it was for so-and-so last year. I, I do have an idea for a mm -hmm. story. Here's somebody else that you could talk to. Yeah. You know? And that's so helpful when people get on board. And I've seen it. I've seen clients that we've worked with for years like – Certain programs, people like slowly over time at the beginning, it was like. You're winning them over. Yeah, and then like a couple years later, they're like, oh, I had this great idea. This mm. person wants to talk to you, you know, and they get on board because they see what a positive experience it can be. You know? Yeah. What about you, Kristen? What do you see organizations using to kind of create that culture of storytelling? I think it's just um, working it into daily practice so that people start to connect their personal mission and why they do the work mm -hmm. with the work and that donors want to be a part of that. Um, I think the ethical piece is huge. I think you can um, show that through everything that you're doing. So people come to understand what storytelling actually means to your organization, because yeah. I think it, because it's a buzzword, you were talking about that earlier. I think a lot of people just jump to that. Like, we're just going to you know, error laundry and exploit people and tell stories all over without their permission. But I think if people can start to talk about what in the work inspires you, that's where the stories will start to come in an organic way. I think when you try to reverse engineer it, like we need an appeal story, who's got one? Right. It's like, that's terrible. And it doesn't set your storyteller up for success, right? People are just like, well, I think there was Jim and he was a part of that thing. And I think it was kind of cool. Let's, let's, let's interview him. And it's like, no, 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 it should be, it should be coming sort of from the ground up versus top down. And so I think it's about just naming it as a priority. We've had organizations actually create speaker bureaus, yes, which I think is really great. helpful. It's super great. Um, being able to actually solicit their client base with, we're looking for folks that want to share their story and even submit just like a little paragraph about their story so that the individual who's volunteering can say, yeah, this is the thing I most want to talk about. Initial consent. Check. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there's always this sort of pause moment that I have when we're when we're working with program staff and I hear, oh, there's this really great person that's in our program right now. And when they say right now, I say pause. I don't know that someone right now seeking services is in a moment where they have a perspective to share, yeah. right? They may be having a great experience that they can share, but they don't have a long-term impact. And it might be a little raw for them to talk about the services that they're currently receiving. And so I think being able to also coach program teams to think about those folks that they've seen go on a journey and that they've seen the long-term impact or implication. But also bookmark those folks that you see having such success now. Yeah. And let's circle back and talk about it. That's why when you build the culture with storytelling within your organization, you'd be like, what's the update? Right. What's going on now? So yeah. it, that can be a story in the future. That that impulse is great, but we don't want to lock people in where they are now. Yeah. We want to let them continue on their journey. Well, let's take a break and then we're going to come back with some fun Q&A and um, dive a little bit into some good examples and stories that you have to share. So we'll be back in just a minute.
Super. At Elevate, we believe in bringing people together. Our online learning platform for fundraising events has webinars, workshops, downloadable tools, and more designed to save you time and stress when planning your next event. We're getting nonprofit, development, and event planning professionals the tools and ideas they need to create events that inspire donors and raise more money. So join us at elevatenonprofit.com. The link is also in our show notes. Welcome back. We're here with Zach Putnam talking video storytelling. Zach, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about when a video is at its best. What does it feel like? What's the experience of it like? Well, I think when these kinds of videos are at their best that they feel very authentic, Mm. you know, which can look a lot of different ways. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the production value or how it's filmed or edited, but so that it feels sincere and that, you know, the people who are speaking it are speaking are in it are speaking from the heart. And, you know, I avoid scripting a lot of the time uh, just because I think it comes off as less genuine. Um, so authenticity, I think, is really important, you know, especially when we're what, the context here where we're asking people to, you know, pledge their donations to this organization. They want to feel really good about it and not like the organization is – maybe manipulating the truth to make it more emotional yep. or, or anything like that. It should all just come off very real and authentic and, and again, sort of transparent, I guess, like like the whole process that we're just sort of letting the donors in on what goes on around here in a very real way. So like, we want to hear some stories from you since we're talking storytelling. Um, tell us a story about one of your favorite videos. Well, it's so hard to choose (laughs) with my children. Um, So, so yeah, I was trying to narrow this down a little bit. Um, uh, I'm going to mention a few here, and I'll try to zero in on one. Um, We work with uh, Canine Companions, which is a service dog organization in Santa Rosa, and I love basically every story we would do with them because there's always a dog as well as, like, an amazing human with that dog, and those stories are always great. Um, We did a story called Four Eye On for Friends of Trees a few years ago. Uh And I was really proud of that one because, you know, trees, it can be sometimes hard to tell a, like, compelling emotional human story about trees. But, like, you know, we we They're on a longer journey than we are. Uh (laughs) Those trees. Right? Uh, And so we did that. I'll, I'll say one that actually comes to mind often for me, though, is one that we did work with Swaim, if I'm not mistaken, with the Oregon Food Bank on the Whitney's Giant-Ass Cinnamon Rolls story. And that one uh, has a special place in my heart just because there's humor, and it's sometimes hard to incorporate humor in a tasteful way. Um, And so, but it also has a lot of heart, um, and that one's one of my favorites, for sure. Let Let me tell a little bit of the story of that video, because it was a really special video. It was right at the beginning of the pandemic, and we were trying to speak to the huge volume or outpouring of support that was coming from the community in support of feeding the community. And there was this incredible story that came out of the community of Whitney, 
and her giant ass cinnamon rolls. And um, this was a mom and daughter team that in the midst of COVID, mom was trying to figure out how to entertain daughter. And daughter was really worried about how people were going to get fed. And so she started making these big cinnamon rolls, like giant pan-sized cinnamon rolls, and selling them online, almost like for auctioning them off almost, and sold some of these cinnamon rolls for thousands of dollars. And so a single cinnamon roll would feed, you know, thousands of people and impact the community on a whole. But in addition to that, she started making them and having people sponsor them and taking them up to the hospitals for the emergency responders. So it was this humor. It was a moment of levity when we needed it most. But it was a really impactful story about how this family was impacting the community. And so it was a really it was a fun story to tell. Well, we like to go on a little ride on the fundraising elevator and take the elevator to the penthouse and talk about a party and then take it to the basement and talk about tools or the inner workings in the boiler room. So our question for you first is we head up to the penthouse and we go to a really good party. Tell us about a time when you saw a video really impact a good party. Wow. Well, you know, I like to think uh, every event where our videos are shown that I've been to. <laughs> They're it, all it, incredible. They made amazing. quite a splash. Um, there's uh, one that uh, comes to mind years ago before I was really doing a lot of this work. Um, I I mean, I was doing video work, but less of the nonprofit storytelling. I attended an event at the Portland Art Museum that was uh, for I Have a Dream Oregon, which I think has now rebranded to Greater Than. But um, there was an appeal story that was actually produced by a, a local company called Blue Chalk that I'll give a shout out to. And it was just a really beautiful, well-told story about a young girl and her dreams and how this educational organization was, you know, helping her get there. And... I thought it was a beautiful story, and I saw the way, uh, like, the room reacted to that story when it was told. And, you know, immediately after that, of course, there was a a paddle raise, and people were giving all this money, and I just sort of saw that whole process happen. And that was one of the moments when I really got excited about realizing, like, oh, wow, like, I could just, like, tell stories like that, and (laughs) people might even pay for it, and it might even help organizations raise more money. Like, this is a thing you can do. So for me personally, that was a moment that I really so like what you know what is this what what do you call this and I started to learn what an appeal story is and all that thing. So well, now you're the expert in the room yes. talking about appeal stories. Ooh, I'm well, always learning. So if we head down to the basement in the boiler room and we're looking at some of the tools and the inner workings, can you tell us what do you need to prep for a good video? Well, you um, you know like we've mentioned should give yourself as much time. Um, You ideally should create a culture of storytelling so that you have stories like on hand. You know, you've got a backup list of storytellers ready to go to. Um, And then, you know, I think you just need to be, you know, thoughtful about your approach. Um, We talk about using a trauma-informed approach actually Mm -hmm. a lot of the time, which the CDC has a great little page on the six principles of a trauma-informed approach. We'll link that for everyone. It really ties very closely into a lot of the same things we're talking about here, about transparency and consent and power. Um, So that's a great guideline to use. Um, does that answer your question? You're looking it for does. more nitty gritty, like you no. need like a tripod and some no. lights. Okay. <laughs> no, we're assuming you're going to bring all those. Yeah, usually we we assume the nonprofit doesn't need to provide those if right. they've engaged you. Well, right. if they do want to engage you, how do folks yeah. find you? 
Well, um, you can find us at our website, which is zpproductions.com. We're also on Instagram at zp.productions. And those are probably the two best ways to reach us. Uh, you could email me directly at zach at zpproductions.com if you wanted to. Great. Awesome. Well, we'll put links to how to get a hold of you in the show notes. And we also will be releasing this for video content. So provide us some examples that we can share as well. We'd love to be able to share out your work. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for helping folks rethink what's possible with video storytelling and ethical storytelling. We're glad to have you here today. Thank you so much. Let me give out one more note. We Every year we do give out a grant to one organization for a free video production. Listen to so close, everyone. <laughs> if you're interested in that, I would just reach out to me and let's talk. We haven't opened a formal application process yet, but we're always interested in talking to people who might like something like that. Thanks for being such a great partner to the Nonprofit Sector, Zach. Thank you. I appreciate that. And it's really great working with organizations like SWAM in this space because it's a lot of fun and I feel like we do a lot of good work. Thanks. Thank you. The Fundraising Elevator is produced in partnership with SWAM Strategies at the studios of the AV department. The program is produced by April Clark and directed by Steve Osborne with audio engineering and original music by Dwayne Anderson and Heidi Christensen. Video production by Chris Peterson, Whitney Gomes, and Nathan Bouquet. Video editing by Steve Osborne. Graphic design by Pendulum Creative Group. And support from Sophia Keller, John Lyles, and Andy Dowsett.